Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Today, my guest is Dr. Yusuf Rashid Sumaila. Rashid is a professor of ocean and fisheries economics at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Rashid is also the director of fisheries economics research unit at the University of British Columbia Institute for Oceans and Fisheries. Rashid has worked in fisheries and natural resource projects in different parts of the world, including the Nordics, Canada, Africa, and South China Sea. He received his PhD in economics from the University of Bergen and his BSc in quantity surveying from the Amud Bello University. Rashid is widely published and has won the 2017 Volvo Environment Prize and was named a Fellow of the Royal Society of Canada in 2019. I had the pleasure of meeting Rashid a couple of years ago. Rashid, it's a pleasure to have you on the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Yeah, thank you very much, Sheila. This is really wonderful. Thanks for all that you are doing, information, passing, getting information to the larger uh, public is just a huge thing because that is the only way we can start to manage our natural resources, our environment, in a way that serves and improves the livelihoods of all our people, especially people in the continent in Africa. So thank you. It's a pleasure. Rashid, I wanted to draw on your wisdom and shed some light on this uh, concept of the blue economy and uh, the law as relates to maritime water. So let me, can I just ask you to please help us understand the current law as relates to the rights of sovereign states in the maritime world? Yeah, so, so I think the most fundamental law, international law, global law we have is actually the United Nations Law of the Sea, which was actually brought into force in 1982. And, and this is an agreement among the world's nations uh, that kind of gives coastal countries, maritime countries, the right to manage their waters from their coast up to 200 nautical miles into the ocean. So that is usually called exclusive economic zones of countries. And so these countries are in principle, according to well agreement, owned by the countries uh, who, who bother the cost. And that is the key uh, law that actually then is propagated down into countries, into nations, into how you catch the fish, who, who you allow to catch your fish and, and, and all those. So yeah, it starts with the UN law of the sea. Right. So from my understanding, then, we have that 200 mile area. What of beyond that space? Who owns that? And and what laws govern uh, ownership or activities in terms of exploitation of resources beyond that 200 mile? Yeah, thank you for, for asking about that. This part of the ocean, remember the ocean is 70% of the earth surface. So this is really important. And that's why managing the ocean and the economic activities, the blue economy, which we will dig deeper into, is so important because if you mess up 70% of what is important to you, then you are in trouble, right? I tell my students, if you score 30%, you will never be where you are now, right? So. And, and out of this 70% of the Earth's surface, if you take the ocean, 
two, two thirds of that, over 60, 62, 63% of that is the high seas. That is areas that are described as areas beyond national jurisdiction. So these are areas outside of the 200 nautical uh, mile zone of coastal countries. And this is large. Actually, it's half of the world's surface. Uh, so, so that's what we're talking. 50% of the surface of the earth is the high seas. And your question is very important. How do we manage that? Okay, countries manage their own waters. Some of them very well, some of them so-so. But at least there is management of that. When you come to the high seas, in general, we don't have any clear owner. That means it's owned by everybody, right? Or it's owned by those who are, have the capacity to actually extract and use up that space. And it's only a few countries. And depending on your questions, we can dig deeper. So the answer to your question is, at the moment, there's not much management of the high seas. It's, we have what we call regional fisheries management organizations, quite a number of them that take portions of the high seas and try to manage them. And this is those who actually take benefits from those areas, uh, then, then uh, come together to manage it. And usually they don't have teeth. It's not like there is a, that they can actually go after members or non-members who don't follow their rules. So technically, there is not much management. Yeah. You, you, you started to reference the concept of the uh, blue economy. And, and so maybe it's, it's, it's worth following up on that. What do we mean by the blue economy? What are the, in natural resource terms, what are the component parts of the blue economy? Great. I mean, the blue economy is a new concept, actually, that captures all the things we do. We, the people, when we go to the ocean, when we go from the coast into the ocean, all the economic activities connected to the ocean, down on top of on the surface of the ocean and within the ocean, all the economic activities. So there are many components here. So most people will think about fish, right? Obviously, fish with from the ocean. So that's, that's a provisioning service, as we say. So it provides us with food, with macronutrients and, and protein. So that is one. Then you have aquaculture, which is connected to that. Some fish farming is taking place in the ocean, in the blue economy. And by the way, the blue economy is not only about the ocean. It's also about our rivers and lakes, all the economic activities we do on them. There's transportation. There is renewable energy that is uh, growing now. You have, you have uh, carbon sequestration. That's another function. It's a service that takes place in the ocean. Animals sequester some of the carbon we emit on land and help to mitigate climate change. So there is that. And, and, and the, the African Union is actually uh, spending some time looking at this and how to support uh, African economies to try to leverage the blue economy in a sustainable way, but not only that, also in an inclusive way, because ultimately we want the blue economy to work for people, to improve our livelihoods in ways that keep the system going into the future for our grandchildren, their own grandchildren. So the, the, the intersection of what we do with the ocean and how we do it sustainably, how we do it inclusively, including the youth, including poorer parts of the world, including vulnerable populations, including women. I mean, all those things are kind of 
wrapped into the new concept of blue economy? Hmm. So uh, I'm daunted because in the first instance, you said about 50% of uh, the earth comprises the high seas. And now you have overlaid that with all the component parts of the blue economy. It starts to look massive, albeit perhaps a little, uh, you know, uh, offsite on a daily basis. And so I have to ask you, what do we know about the impact of climate change on the blue economy or on aspects of the blue economy? Yeah, fantastic. So, so really, climate change is a big issue. We all know that. I mean, it affects all sectors of our economy. It affects the livelihoods of so many of us, directly and indirectly, right? So when it comes to the ocean, the interaction between the blue economy, the ocean, our lakes and rivers is really intertwined, you know, in so many ways. Number one, because climate is changing and the, the earth is getting warmer, the ocean actually absorbs a lot of the heat and a lot of the warmth. So the sea surface temperature of the ocean is rising. If you look at the research done all over the world, you see that the average mean temperature almost everywhere is higher than the long-term average, So, which means we're warming. And the sea surface is getting warmer. Now, this has many consequences. As living things, think of people, we all have a range of temperature within which we are comfortable, including fish, including marine life, including mammals, right? If this changes, then you, you are in trouble, except you can do something about it. If I'm in my room and it is too warm, I open the window, the air flows through, or you, if you have air conditioning, you put it on. If it is too cold, you put on the heater. The fish don't have this. So they have two options. Either they follow the temperature, so fish are moving. Those that can move actually are moving. And those that cannot move or cannot move fast enough perish and we lose them. So there is a huge consequences on life in the ocean because of climate change. And when you affect the life of the animals in the ocean, which we depend on in so many ways in our blue economy, taking fish, cooking it, feeding our families, selling it, making income, all those are impacted. Or recreational, you go to watch whales, you watch dolphins, that is affected, right? And we can go on and on. So there is a lot of impact uh, that we already are seeing. And, and, and you know, the, the thing about the movement of fish, which really uh, makes me uh, very disturbed as an African, first and foremost, is that most of the movement of the fish is from countries close to the equator, in the middle of the earth, if you like. The fish are moving towards the poles. So to me, this is huge. I mean, so morally, economically, socially, culturally, impacts all over. And the fact that most of the people uh, living along the, the equator are not really those creating most of the greenhouse gases that are impacting and making our climate. Uh, but uh, the per capita, people around the equator emit really very little. And yet, there are those who are going to be impacted more. So there is a lot here. We can unwrap it if you have time, but there's so much. 
So uh, I, I was going to ask, but in some way you've answered. But let me see if I I, I understood you correctly. So are you saying that uh, though we are observing throughout the world that the average temperature of the oceans is rising. Are you saying that we are seeing a greater impact along the equator, the result of which is species of fish are moving northwards, seeking cooler weather? Uh, did I understand you correctly? Absolutely. That is exactly the point, right? Because we are the countries in the equator, we are the tropics, it's, it's warmer there already. So the, 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 the ranges reach very quickly when the ocean gets warmer and the fish try to survive like every little thing. And so they are moving towards the pole. Some of our research will have shown that. If you look at West African countries, for example, some of them will be losing. The current catch level will be dropping by up to 50% because of climate change alone, right? So that's why we are saying fish are moving to Iceland, to, to Norway at least in the short term, right? So, so we're actually seeing potential increases in the fisheries of the Arctic, for example. But the tropics are going to be emptier and emptier, side, which to me aggravates the global inequality problem and another huge dimension here. Yeah. So it's, it, it reminds me of uh, the impact of uh, uh, carbon emissions and the disproportionate nature of the adverse effect of that on poor communities. So, so basically, we are seeing this both onshore and offshore. Do we know in economic terms, are we able to quantify in the short term what the impact is on the economies of these countries uh, and, and how the countries are helping themselves counter this negative effect? Yeah, yeah, no, this is really the hard. We, we have our group and other groups in the world have been making estimates of it. I actually led a group of uh, scientists and we did a paper which we published in 2019. I think it's worth looking at. We published that in, uh, in uh, Science Advances, the journal Science Advances. And, and what we did was simply to say, what will happen to fish catch? First of all, the fish biomass in the ocean because that's where you start well what will happen to it if we were to implement the paris agreement what will happen to the fish in the ocean and therefore the amount of fish we catch and therefore the revenues and incomes our companies fishing companies and fishes and 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 the amount of actually how much we pay for the same quality and quantity of fish to feed our families so we tracked all of this and it's really quite a cool paper. And what we found is that there will be billions of billions of savings from fish benefits if only we were able to meet the Paris Agreement. So that gives you an example. And the, the paper is on the website. It's uh, open access. Anyone can get hold of it. If you look for it, you find it. The benefits of meeting the Paris Agreement. And, and the first author is smiler. So you can get that. And that tells you, and this, there we had a picture of the countries that will benefit most if we meet the climate impact and those that will not. And most of them are tropical countries, not only in Africa, in Latin America, in Asia, and especially in the Pacific Island uh, countries, the smaller countries that are really ocean countries and depend on, on fish a lot. 
so so um we have countries that are small island states uh mm-hmm. a lot of them in the caribbean some in asia uh even fewer on the african continent is there any international consensus on how to mitigate the somewhat more extreme risk that uh these uh, island states face with respect to one uh global warming rising waters and then uh potential migration of uh fishery species yeah so yes i mean the, the, there are efforts uh, at the un in particular in fact the these small island development states we have a lot to thank them for because they have been leading the charge to push the world to really do something about climate change because the risk to them is so high. So you will find a country like Palau quite central in almost all the discussions about the ocean and its relationship to climate change and fishing and so on. Uh, there is the global, uh, what do they call it, the sustainable ocean economy, uh, the high-level panel that was put together it was it's actually co-led by the prime minister of Norway and the president of Palau, for example. So they have actually put the world, they've told the world, look, there is a big issue here and we are going to pay a huge price. And when we pay a huge price, it's not only us, it affects the world. And so the world has to do something. So they, they use their moral authority. These are not big countries. They don't have the economy to... To, to, to compel countries to do what they want. They don't have the military. What they have is moral authority on the world. And I think they are using it well. And, and so there's big discussions in the UN and in different fora, like the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy. In the climate discussions, these countries are very important. And, and we all need to support their efforts because really, and even the, uh, the discussion on the blue economy, they are one block that actually brought that to the fore. And, and they have a concept of blue economy, which is quite healthy in my view, because they talk about sustainability and the livelihood of the most vulnerable populations of the world. There is another group that talks about blue economy and they just think there is so much money to be made, right? That's the business go get kind of thinking. And, and I think these two views, we have to look at them closely. Uh, and I really think that what the world needs is the view that is propagated by the small island development states and the developing countries of the world that say these resources should be used to support the most vulnerable and, the, and as many people as possible. Yeah, so. Yeah, so the, this is interesting because uh, as I listen to you, mm. uh, in many ways from the emerging market, and uh, small island states perspective. We are looking at uh, subsistence and uh, human well-being. From uh, the global north, we are looking at fisheries as uh, a resource uh, for business purposes. And, and, and so I wonder how, if at all, these conflicting views are reconciled, especially uh, given that fish in some cases is moving north. This fish moving north seems to me a, 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 a strange irony in terms of natural justice. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's a huge irony, I mean, in that sense. And, and like I said before, the, 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 those crossing the, 
the movement are actually mostly not people in this country. So, so you have all those moral and, and connections. To your question about how to reconcile the interests of the global north and the global south, uh, that's that's a big question, and and it actually appears everywhere you go debating global issues, whether you're talking about climate change, right, or, or you're even talking about how to manage fisheries by by disciplining harmful subsidies. You know, the developing countries will tell you, come on, guys, we are trying to develop our, our fisheries to a level that they can support uh, the people, and you are telling us to pull back. So this is a crucial question, how to reconcile those. And and, uh, and the UN and all of that, this, this is part of the discussion. And I think the way to do it is really, in my view, is for the global north to take responsibility for what they have done through the time up to now in accumulating CO2 and therefore impacting disproportionately higher. So, so taking responsibility is a key thing. Uh, I was at the, at the European Parliament uh, before COVID and I gave a talk and this is what I said. Your fleets, the European fleets, developed country fleets are big. They go all over distant water fishing. You have the responsibility to run in on this. I mean, the smaller countries, there's just so much they can do. On the other hand, I was in Senegal and I was giving a talk on subsidies and I told them, look, Africa needs to take some moral high ground here, you know, and because we need to save the world from all these big issues, climate change, overfishing. So we tell the world we are willing to take moral responsibility. We didn't contribute much, but we'll do our best to regulate our own CO2 emissions, our overfishing. But you guys have to really step up because the big, the big bulk of the, of the problem emanates from the global north. So take responsibility up there, take moral high ground in developing countries, and hopefully we'll be able to close this gap. And also when I say responsibility, that means putting in, the, the global north needs to put in the resources and investment really to support the livelihoods of, uh, of the many in the, in the global south in a collaborative way, in a progressive way, in a way that enables people in the global north to stand on their feet and, and take care of ourselves. So that is my little mm. recipe here. <laughs> so uh, I want to take those two issues, the north taking responsibility and the south taking moral authority. Let's take uh, the north and its responsibility to tidy up after itself. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you've said already that uh, the law of the high seas is pretty weak yeah. in that uh, basically it's like the, the Wild West. Yeah. The strongest survive. And if you have the means to go to the high seas and harvest whatever there is, you know, nobody's going to stop you. So faced with that, Rashid, where is the motivation for those in the north to do the right thing? It, it, it must clearly serve. Uh, those who do not want to take responsibility to have this ambiguity in terms of uh, uh, jurisdiction over the high seas, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, you, 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 you're touching on something really important here. And so, so first of all, just to give uh, uh, people a little bit of data on the high seas, uh, it's supposed to be owned by all citizens of the world, but I tell you about 10 countries fishing there, usually the big fishing nations. We are talking about 
Spain, you're talking about China, Taiwan, Korea, they take more than 70% of all the face values from the highest. So that, that just starts, just kind of, and, and none hmm. of them African or, or Latin American is mainly Asia and the rich Asia and the rich North. So that, that, that already brings in. So actually, in some of our research, we have come to the conclusion, our group here at UVC and also in Santa Barbara, California, we have come to the conclusion that the best thing the world can do with fishing in the high seas is to simply close the whole high seas to fishing. I don't know whether you've heard this. This is very controversial, but actually more and more we are getting interest. Close the high seas to, to, to fishing, make it what we term the, the fish bank of the world, where once the fish is in there, they get peace, they, they grow well, they, they spawn, they, they lay eggs, and these eggs and the juveniles and even mature fish move into coastal waters so that all coastal countries will have the chance to catch them cheaply without pumping out too much carbon. You know, I mean, it's just wonderful. You look at it, anyhow you look at it, it's good for biodiversity, it's good for economics, good for reduction of CO2, and socially and equity-wise, it's wonderful. So a small country like Mozambique or, or, or Guinea-Bissau or even Bangladesh, it's not small, but it's a, it's a poorer country, can get to catch the fish when they come into their water. And the fish go in and out. 78% of the value of the fish, global fish, we catch. 78% of the fish value are fish that go in and out of the high seas and some country waters, right? So they do come. And, and so this is a beautiful idea. And now this goes to your point, one of your points. How do you get the countries that are making so much benefit to pull back? And they're the strong countries, the rich countries, militarily big. So it looks like impossible, but actually it's not as impossible as you think. Why do I say that? Within these countries, we have people actually, large contingencies of people who actually see that this is a wise thing to do, who are also allies of vulnerable people in the world who support gender equality. So we have people within this rich country that can actually team up and help us push their government to do the right thing. So that is, that is one thing. And we can also really name and shame, and this has happened, that's happened. You, you just make it uncomfortable. If Palau keeps saying, come on, China, come on, Spain, why are you doing this? And they have the support of the ACP countries, Africa, Caribbean, Palestine countries, that sometimes actually works. So, so I, I just want us to see that there is hope even when it looks so impossible. And uh, mm. I have gotten into conversation with the Canadian member of parliament who finds this idea intriguing and actually is thinking maybe Canada can lead the world to close the high seas to fishing. So we get all these benefits, right? Biological mm. and social. So there you go, Sheila. There is hope. Let's keep pushing. Mm. Yes, but but I mean, if you if you look at it on face value, even without being either a scientist or or, or an economist, minimally, uh, if you instituted something like that, you would be able to replenish the stocks yeah. minimally. Mm. Now it may well be that at some point you can then again do. Uh, some kind of baseline and say, okay, this is the minimum we will live with. And if we cross this threshold, we will then uh, 
auction the rights to fish and 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 the the uh, proceeds from there will go towards uh, helping uh, vulnerable uh, communities or something of the sort. But certainly, mm-hmm. yeah. what what you can't do is harvest without regard to replenishment. Mm-hmm. Even for the powerful and wealthy nations, this is uh, self-defeating in the long run, isn't um, it? Yeah, absolutely, Sheila. This is wonderful. So that is another reason why you can have allies in, in these countries who actually will support it. Because it's self-defeating, you're taking down the fish, you're just messing the future, your own children and grandchildren. So yeah, there is a very good argument there. And your other point, when I say close the high seas, I mean, this is just a big metaphorical statement, right? But you are right, we could say, and this has been recommended by a powerful Global Ocean Commission, because we did this work uh, years ago where they said, and it's partly based on our research, I was advising the Global Ocean Commission. That was one of the places I launched this big idea and, and half of the room loved it and half did it, I like it, right? Which is, <laughs> and actually what they ended up saying is that we give the world five years to find a way to manage the high seas well, or you close it until we can do so. So, so that is the concept you just... Uh, uh, advancing your question, which I think is a great one. Uh, we learn how to do this, we get the technology, and then we can open up wisely in ways that is sustainable. And, and we can also auction the fish, why not? You can give, get, get the highest uh, bidder to pay for it, and then you can plow in these resources in ways that support vulnerable people, improve the livelihoods of most of the people in the world. Hmm. Tell me what, uh, to you, assuming moral authority on the part of countries to the south uh, means. What does this t- uh, practically look like? Yeah, so let's, let's use one example. Uh, as, as you and the audience uh, may already know or know, the World Trade Organization is currently working, really working hard, especially since uh, Dr. Ngozi, Ngozi uh, became the director general, the first African and a woman to lead the WTO, amazing time. And she has put, helping the world to remove harmful subsidies. These are subsidies that lead to overfishing and overcapacity and undermines uh, the sustainability and the ability of the ocean and our blue economy in general to continue giving their services. She's put it on her agenda to remove that. So this is one place where I could see the smaller countries, the developing worlds, going up there and saying, look here, the world, we know this is difficult for us. I mean, we do give some subsidies, but not as much as you do. And your distant water fishing fleet, get the subsidies, come into our waters, help to take down the fish stocks, which supports our people. So. We are willing to, to support the taking of our harmful subsidies, but only if you do the same. So, so this is a moral high ground, Africa says. We, are, we, didn't, we don't contribute much into this mess, but we know there's a bit we do, and we are willing to pull back. But you, the big ones causing this trouble, have to do the same, you know, for us mm. to really sign on to. So that's a moral high ground that puts the world gives the world a notice and actually that will, 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 will give 
Africa and the developing world an image in, in sustainability and conservation, which will actually be positive. I can imagine, I can imagine young Canadians uh, talking about how Africa is leading the world to save the ocean in a positive way, which can actually have a lot of co benefits, as you know, right? I mean, if we have more and more young people in the world seeing us playing a positive role in this way, I think the economic benefits in the medium and long term could be really high. Hmm. So uh, two, two things. I mean, I think uh, we have to be optimistic. Otherwise, there's no point in doing anything. So in many respects, I, I empathize with uh, your logic of moral authority, which is to say, come to the party and help tidy up somebody's mess because in the process you are uh, laying the foundation for the future of your children. Absolutely. But uh, so, I mean, looked at that way, it makes perfect sense. Here is a problem, uh, if I may be a devil's advocate. Yeah, let's you go. Know, <laughs> the way I see the world now mm. is the word uh, morality is, is, is being relegated. How does one assume moral authority in a world in which all things moral are no longer fashionable, mm. politically at least? Mm. Yeah. No. What, is the, what is the currency there? I mean, uh, moral authority, in my view, Rashid, is only valuable if you are not dealing with rogues. But if you are dealing with rogues, God help you. Would that be right? Yeah. No, I, 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 share, I share this point with you, Sheila. And... Uh, I, I see it every day and I get a flag, you know. I mean, just think about this idea of a, a post-truth post world, right? Mm -hmm. In the basic truths, we cannot agree. I mean, uh, as we are talking, the U.S. cannot decide whether those people who went out to the Capitol on January, January 6th, whether they are Tories or not. Can you imagine that? With all the videos, they're still arguing about it. So this really, really scares me. I mean, if you tell people, look, uh, this is a cup of tea, they will tell you, no, it's a banana until you tell them to eat it. <laughs> and, then, and then they won't even, uh, they won't even agree. When you tell them to eat it, then they move to the next lie, right? And so the moral thing is really wicked. And I think we have to find a way to bring it back. Because frankly mm. speaking, the market alone, economics alone, cannot do it. Otherwise, we'll have no problem in this world, really. We all know that there are things that the economics and the markets are good at, and there are things that they are not good at. And with moral authority, ethical things, I know they are very fluffy, as my fellow economists will say, but we cannot get the world in, the, in, the, in a better place by just thinking of the dollars and the money in our pocket. It, it hasn't yeah. worked or it will not work now and in the future. So we've got to find a way to do this, Sheila. Yeah. Yeah. No, to be, to be fair, I wanted, uh, I, I think for me, it's not a question of whether, uh, you know, business ethics, mm. uh, human values, and being moral are part of the equation. That's a given mm. uh, because we need to have a set of rules of engagement around which we even design these laws and policies. And, and, and the moral fabric of society, among others, is uh, that architecture that allows us to then do the brick and mortar of policies, laws, and other things. Uh, in the absence of that context, we are, we are literally slicing in the dark. So I, don't, I, I buy into the moral authority thing. 
it's just that I, I was uh, putting myself in the position of uh, two things. One, the, the time and place now, how does one navigate that argument? Yeah. Two, uh, the other is the sense of agency. On the one hand, you have a sense of agency to grapple with these things because the fish is running out, the water is getting warm. And, and nobody in the science knows how to reverse this once, uh, you know, the process starts. So there's a certain sense of agency. But on the one hand, you also have this current dynamic, which almost goes contrary to that agency. I wanted just to put that on the table to say, how does Rashid see this and how do we deal with this? But not because uh, one can uh, do away with the importance of morality. That is a given, I think. Absolutely. I mean, you're, you're, mm. all that you say, I agree with. I mean, the challenge we have is how to keep these important elements of human life and human condition, human behavior, still to keep them in contention because we, they, they're losing their place day in, day out. And I agree with you. And this is a huge challenge. And this is where we need brains to come together. In fact, I, I, don't, I don't have a clear solution to this. Of course, who has? This is a big problem. The thing is, we need to find a way to change the perception of what is cool. And, and this is not easy, right? What is cool? On my campus here, to give you an example, uh, I believe years ago, in the 50s, if you can buy a big car, you just go buy a big car. But today, if you are a professor and you are riding a big vehicle to campus, you know what? The students think you are a fool. It's not cool to do that. On the other hand, if, if students in the community know that you ride bicycle to campus, my God, you are a hero, right? So, so this is a small micro thing, but I think those kind of change in perceptions and attitudes is, is what may help us to, to, to rescue ourselves and the planet because really the trajectory we are taking now is quite crazy. I mean, so sometimes, for example, I think of how developing country families, how under very tight conditions, how we keep going, right? Uh, the little resources we, we used actually to, to still keep life going. I mean, how about if the world begins to recognize this? How about the world, if the world begins to recognize, say, for example, I, I, I don't have data, hard data to, but I believe that the teaching hospital of my university, uh, University of British Columbia, the budget of the teaching hospital is probably bigger than the budget of the largest hospital in, say, Ghana. You know, for example, this is something if I had many hours in the day, I would do the analysis, right? And so if I look at forgetting all the corruption that we can improve, all the bad management that we can improve, if you make room for all of those, you may find out that a hospital in Africa is actually delivering more per dollar, per resources available than a hospital in Canada or in Norway or in, 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 in but, but nobody does analysis like this. You say, oh, all these hospitals are all bad. So can we really go down and look at how effective people are in using the resources they have available? That might change our thinking about 
you know mm. what is cool. Mm. Yeah. So, so, so um, a, a, a couple of things as we move towards uh, uh, closure. And so, on the one hand, we you've spoken about uh, moral authority. I think there's another strength uh, that is critical, and and I think that's that, and and that uh, leads to the intersection of uh, today's youth versus others from the past, and that is public knowledge. So you see, I uh, was born and raised in a landlocked country. And for Africa, there's many such countries. So this thing of the oceans, uh, this thing of the blue economy it is not well understood and it's not part of the discourse because it's not part of people's daily living. And I wanted to, to suggest to you and, and get your, your view on this, that a huge part of what we need is a groundswell of public information and knowledge on the understanding of the, the interplay between the blue economy and, and our daily lives, regardless of whether we ourselves are fishermen or not. Yeah. Uh, because I think for many people, this may be misconstrued as not an important issue because it's seen only in terms of uh, you know, maritime law in those countries that like the Congo may have large waterways, but for countries like Botswana, uh, you know, Mauritania, Niger, and, and others that, you know, see a different picture, yeah. this may not be getting the attention it deserves. How much public education is there to create the kind of groundswell, especially for the youth, that might make uh, our African, Latin American, Asian young people think uh, driving a small car is cool the way they do in Canada because clearly they are linking uh, gasoline consumption and energy consumption with size because they get it. But yeah. somebody had to tell them first, right? Mm, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, no, uh, information, information, information. We really, uh, that is the, it's a necessary condition. It's not sufficient. Get the information to the people. So, you are, this is why when, when you send this email, I was so happy. I say, okay, Sheila is really contributing and you're not just sitting down and just talking about it like most of us. You take an action. And this single action you have done is going to really inform and educate people who otherwise will not even make this connection. So the more we do that, the better. I'm, I'm fully with you. And that is why I'm one of uh, um, many new uh, uh, scholars, researchers, however you want to call us, faculty in the universities. We don't believe that. We just need to publish our papers in the journals and, and that's it. No way. We get the information out. People who can make decisions at their micro level and also make connections to their communities, to their countries, and to the world. So, Massive mass education, mass literacy efforts are needed to do this now. To our, our fellow uh, citizens who are in landlocked country, it's good to realize that really the ocean and what it provides our water bodies, maybe I should say aquatic systems, the, the, what they provide to the world is really all-encompassing in many ways. Uh, I talked about absorbing heat, absorbing CO2, sequestering CO2, the climate modification. These are all things that 
go across the world. It's not only the coastal countries. And also fish is traded. So through trade, we really have connections. I mean, I bet you in Botswana, you, 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 some of you still eat fish, right? Which is brought in through trade. I mean, you, you have that happening. The good news is that I think landlocked countries are beginning to actually make the connection. When I gave a, a talk about closing the high seas a number of times at the UN in New York, I had participants from Congo, from, from landlocked countries coming in because they said, this is also about us, right? Because we do eat fish. And it's good to really talk about it and bring it in out to the public so people get to realize how intertwined they are to our ocean, to our water bodies, inland, offshore, ocean, and, and, and rivers and lakes so that we, we, really, we really understand that without, without ocean transportation, for example, a lot of the things that uh, Botswana uh, enjoy and use every day will not get there, for example. So there is that connection. And, uh, mm. yep. Yeah, so, so you've got me thinking quite a bit with this moral authority thing, because I have been struggling with tangible what the difference is in the short term. Uh, that uh, the South can make. And I, and I, I do think, uh, you know, it, it's well worth thinking about this moral authority. And, and, and one of the things is just educating citizens so that they become part of the public discourse. It, it, it can't take a huge amount of effort to, to do that. Uh, the other, of course, is... Uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the leaders in the South mm. also make connecting the dots. And, and with that, uh, creating a sense of agency. Yeah. Because when, when one listens, in, in the North, there's a lot of talk. But as you said, if you split the room, you have the naysayers on the one hand, and then you have the aggressive uh, ones pushing for protection of the world's environment. And, and the jury side on who will win. But am I right that we don't have in the South that level of debate with or without consensus? Uh, uh, do we see climate change less agently? Are we more uh, preoccupied with just egging a living in the South, do you think, Rashid? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think so. And there are all sorts of reasons for this. Some of them are, are good reasons, right? Uh, people have told me, for example, Rashid, we contribute very little, so why are you bothering us, right? right? And, and I tell them, look, every little drop, I mean, matters. The, the whole mighty ocean is made up of little drops of water. So, so you cannot, and if you are going to get those who really pollute more to, to do something, we better demonstrate that we also are willing to contribute, no matter how small, right? So, so there are there are good reasons, and and also we have the pressures of uh, basic stuff in the developing world. I mean, people who are, I gave a talk in Namibia some time ago, and one of the managers said, "Rashid, you're talking about sustainable fisheries. What do we feed our poor fishes today with?" I know. And so that is the kind of questions that keep coming again and again. In fact, <laughs> this has got me to start thinking outside of, say, fisheries. I mean, because I don't think we can solve the problem 
of the fisheries sector in terms of overfishing and livelihoods for people by just looking at the sector. We need to look out of the sector. We actually published a paper earlier this year where we, we asked the question, if our global fisheries, both inland, ocean, aquaculture, are managed top line to the best ability, can it support all the people who are currently in the sector? And the answer is unfortunately no. You know, so what do we do? We need to open up the economy. We need to incentivize, incentivize. We need to get finance to the right kind of ocean activities in the developing world. And actually this is a paper which is coming out uh, on June 8th, World Ocean Day that we did for the global uh, high level panel where we look at ocean finance because no matter your good ideas without finance, it dies at the altar of no finance. So, or new ways of really supporting uh, activities in our countries, uh, both inland and, and offshore. That's wonderful. So that brings us to the end of today's conversation. But um, I, I, I dare say that I think I was very keen to bring the blue economy into this conversation of uh, climate change because when I listen to the public discourse, a huge focus is on land and, and, and uh, fossil fuels. Uh, little regard is given to the blue economy, but more importantly to fisheries, knowing as I do its nutritional value, its medicinal value, and its subsistence value and its scientific value. It just seems to me that even if all I did was talk to one person, that that would be worthwhile. And I couldn't think of a better person than Rashid. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, you will be hearing from me again uh, in the foreseeable future. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your work, Sheila. This is wonderful. Yeah. We talk again. <laughs> <laughs>